This morning, I want you to know up front that our time in Leviticus is going to be intentionally brief. In fact, the few verses that we're going to re-examine at the close of Leviticus chapter 9 will simply act as a type of portal through which we're going to travel back in time in order to gain a greater understanding of what God's really seeking to accomplish and the things we've been looking at in Leviticus and more specifically this incredible scene we found at the end of Leviticus 9. Now, I mentioned in our introduction to the series in its entirety that the ideas you often encounter in this interesting book is in a lot of ways God kicking the ball back to a point in time in order to reestablish an appropriate way forward. We discussed that at some length in our introduction. In soccer, as an example, kicking the ball back is not only acceptable, but it has a strategic value. The ball is kicked back to a place where then you can progress the ball forward or upfield in a more successful fashion. A great illustration of this concept at work is presented for us in Leviticus 9. After finishing the creation of this tabernacle of meeting at the end of Exodus, the establishment of the sacrificial system in Leviticus 1-7, through the ordaining of the, the priest, Aaron and his sons, Leviticus 8. That chapter closes with those men in the process of their consecration, spending seven days in the tabernacle. Now we noted last Sunday that Leviticus 9 opens on the eighth day. So seven days in the tabernacle, finishing the consecration of the priesthood, Leviticus 9 opens on the eighth day, with Aaron and his sons coming forth, officially occupying their role as priests, the tabernacle officially being open for business. Within this chapter, Aaron and his role as high priest makes the necessary sacrifices for himself. Before then, we examine how he offers these sacrifices we saw in the first seven chapters for the congregation of Israel. With these offerings sitting upon the bronze altar, they're out in front of the tabernacle. As the Lord had instructed, the entire multitude of Israel looking attentively on as to what would happen next. We read in Leviticus 9 verse 23 that Moses and Aaron go into the tabernacle of meeting. We don't know what happens. What's said? What takes place? How long? But they come out. And they begin to bless, active tense, blessings upon blessings to the congregation. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all of the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. And when the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. What a scene that would have been to be present for. Moses and Aaron come out of the tent. They pronounce these blessings on the congregation. As that's happening, the glory of the Lord appears to everyone. He can be seen. It's likely the glory physically manifested in a cloud of smoke, similar to what we found on top of Mount Sinai. Now it is descended. It's filled the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, resting on the mercy seat atop the Ark of the Covenant. What was it like? Not just to see those things, but then to see fire come out from before the Lord. We can only assume coming out from behind the veil, the holy of holies, to consume the burnt offering, the fat that was on 
the bronzen altar. What did it sound like? The explosion. Not just what it, what, what, what it visually looked like, the sound. Like a meteor. Could you feel the rush of air as it comes out and consumes? The smell. Again, we mentioned last Sunday that the word shouted. The people shouted when they saw this. It wasn't a scream of terror. They weren't frightened by what they had seen. They had seen quite a lot in their day. Instead, they were overwhelmed. Overcome with joy, jubilee. The entire system of offerings had been founded on a core premise that God would accept the sacrifice on behalf, on their behalf to make atonement for sin. Would God really make good on that? Would God really accept these things? Well, this is the moment in time they would find out. How incredible to see fire come consume the altar. Indeed, God had accepted these things for their atonement. And it didn't take long for this initial reaction of ecstatic joy and merriment to morph into a reverence. Again, picture the scene. The cloud of God's presence in the tabernacle. Moses and Aaron standing at the door calling out blessings to the people. Smoke ascending from the consumed offering. Fire still dancing upon the altar itself. Then slowly, this million to two million Jewish people in the desert, former slaves, fall to their knees and bow to their faces in worship and adoration. There is no debating the fact that Leviticus 9, these verses, record for us one of the most radical moments in all of human history. Again, to be there. God has now, in this moment, reestablished an important connection with humanity. Those still shielded to a large extent by a veil in the tabernacle, God was now, though, in their midst. How incredible. And while he still had to be approached through an acceptable sacrifice, he was accessible for the first time. And yet, as radical as this would have been, humanity coming before God in this place of meeting, please note, this is not the first time we have seen such a scene. In fact, I believe the scene we find in these two verses of Leviticus 9 is intentionally reminiscent of what we originally find presented all the way back in Genesis chapter 4. If you've been with us through any part of our study in Leviticus, you already know that so many of the things laid out in this book are deliberately crafted with either numerological relevance or purposeful creation language all designed to take the reader back to creation. This is intentional. The reason this is significant, the purpose, the motivation for, for our study, our attention, is that in order to completely understand what's happening in Leviticus 9, around this tabernacle of meeting, oh, there is so much more than you would just see, you need to know what happens in the original scene the scene in Leviticus 9 intends to send you back to. You follow me? So to know what's happening in Leviticus 9, you need to go back to the scene that scene sent you to. 
Think of it this way. If Leviticus 9 is God specifically kicking the ball back to the events of Genesis 4, you have to consider why God would do such a thing. And don't forget, the original creation had been the result of God's perfect order. And yet, that beautiful order was instantly turned to chaos through man's rebellion. God had given Adam and Eve one command, not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He had even warned them that if they were to do so, death would result. Disobedience. Sadly, enticed by the lies of the serpent, Eve took the fruit, both she and Adam ate of it, and man messed everything up. Following an appropriate and even necessary confrontation, God pronounces the curse. And the process of that promises to send a Savior through the seed of the woman, interesting, before the following occurs. Genesis chapter 3, verses 21 through 24. Let me read it for you. We're told, For Adam and his wife Eve, the Lord God, made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he should put his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So God drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. According to these verses, It was paramount in their fallen condition that humanity no longer retain any type of access to this mysterious tree of life. No longer were Adam and Eve or any of their descendants to eat from the fruit of that tree and live forever in their sin. What this tells us up front is that God implemented the death of the physical man in order to divide that man's existence into two parts, the temporal and the eternal, the first component to his plan of redemption. Beyond this, Adam and Eve, we're we're told, were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Think about that. They were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Now, there's a whole lot about Eden that we don't know. A lot of mystery around the Garden of Eden. Where did it go? What happened to it during the flood? Where was it specifically located? Like a lot of things about the Garden of Eden. We can debate and and theorize and postulate, but we don't know. That being said, there does appear to be ample evidence that the Garden of Eden was in many ways an extension of heaven on earth. Not only do we know that there was an angelic presence And the Garden of Eden, Uh, the scripture reference for that would be Ezekiel 28, verse 13. But in multiple places throughout scripture, the Garden of Eden is actually referred to as the Garden of God. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, we're given a pretty incredible scene. That after taking seven days to speak all things into existence, and then to personally form man from the dust of the earth, God does something he hadn't done in creation. He spoke all things into existence, got more personal by forming man from the dust, but then we're told that God planted. He planted the gardener. He planted a garden eastward in Eden. 
And there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight, good for food. The tree of life is also in the midst of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Later on in Revelation 22, you'll actually see the tree of life again. This time not in the Garden of Eden, but in a new location, heaven. For our purposes this morning, the one thing we can say with certainty is that the Garden of Eden was the one place where the divine came into contact with the earth. Eden was the location where God would come to interact with man. In fact, according to Genesis 3 verse 8, it wasn't uncommon for the Lord to go for a walk in the garden in the cool of the day. Please know, in expelling Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, we understand that a change had taken place in humanity's accessibility to God Himself. Because of sin, there was now a separation between a holy God and the fallen man. That separation had to be established. Thus, man was kicked out of the Garden of Eden. For these two reasons, restricting access to the tree of life, as well as restricting access to the presence of God, in addition to forcing man from the Garden of Eden, we also read how the Lord found it necessary to place a cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden. Cherubim were were angelic beings, as well as a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way. It's an incredible thing. Man, you're out of the garden, no access to the tree of life, limited access to me, In addition to that, it's so important that I've got cherubim placed as guards and a flaming sword. It goes everywhere. You're not getting by it. Restricting access. Tree of life, permanently blocked. Access to God, restricted. But there's something else that takes place. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, we then read, For Adam and his wife, the Lord God, made tunics of skin and clothed them. Practically, we see a manifestation here of God's love for Adam and Eve. See, what God is doing is He's substituting their inadequate coverings of fig leaves, if you recall, with more effective and durable coverings, tunics specifically of skin. That said, the circumstantial evidence presented in the Genesis record suggests that something is much deeper and more spiritual taking place. Yes, God practically is giving them covering, but there's something else happening. According to Genesis 3, verse 7, we know that the inclination, that initial inclination for Adam and Eve to cover themselves. You know when it manifested? Why they took fig leaves, why they sewed them together to make coverings? Well, it came as a direct result of their sin. This consciousness that they were naked needed coverings. You see, after eating the forbidden fruit, we're told that the eyes of both of them were opened. Which is amazing. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. In their guilt, Adam and Eve became self-aware in a way that they hadn't in their perfect state. Sin, rebellion, disobedience had caused some type of fundamental change in their internal constitution. A change, by the way, they immediately are aware of, and they attempt to hide. Not only would these coverings, these outward coverings, prove ineffective to hide their internal shame. (laughs) If you've read through Genesis, God saw right through it. 
But it would appear in the process of clothing them by making, substituting the fig leaves for tunics of skin, that God was teaching Adam and Eve a very important and essential lesson. These tunics of skin would do more than just cover their obvious nakedness. These tunics would illustrate the important precedent that atonement for sin could only be provided through a blood sacrifice that God would have to make on their behalf. They didn't make for themselves tunics of skin. God was the one who did it for them. In our study through Leviticus, we've noted time and time again that the English word we encounter, atonement, and the word we find in Genesis, covering, that God made covering, they're, they're both translated from the identical Hebrew word. It's the same word. The same word for atonement is the same word for covering, which, by the way, is first used in this passage that God made coverings from these tunics of skin. It's important to also point out that the word we have here translated skin, well, it referred to an animal's hide. That's important. You see, it wasn't as though that God sheared wool from a lamb to make Adam and Eve some designer fleeces. That's not what the passage is saying. What's implied by using the word skin or hide is that God literally slaughtered an animal before Adam and Eve, took the hide, and made tunics for them. In Leviticus 7 verse 8, we find the same word. In connection with the burnt offering, we're told that the priest who offers anyone's burnt offering, while everything else was consumed, what are we told? He shall have for himself the skin of the burnt offering which he has offered. Like, understand, God wanted Adam and Eve to know as they leave the Garden of Eden that the only remedy for their sin, the only mechanism for their restoration, the restoration of their access to his presence would have to come through a work he would accomplish for them and a sacrifice he would make, not one they would. See, God is letting them know as they're leaving the garden that His favor could only be given to humanity and could never be earned. Isn't it fascinating that the first offering God establishes in Leviticus 1, the burnt offering, intended to illustrate the identical idea that God had demonstrated to Adam and Eve all the way back in Genesis 3, that for covering an atonement to happen, God would have to offer something costly, the firstborn of his herd, that Jesus, the sacrifice, would have to endure something ghastly, and that we would have to accept both things by faith. The reason I'm convinced that these ideas were voiced to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden as they're being kicked out. That they understood what God was doing, while the passage doesn't say that specifically. The reason I'm convinced of it is what immediately follows. You see, if God had not articulated these things to Adam and Eve, then Genesis chapter 4 would make zero sense at all. Let's read Genesis 4, beginning with verse 1. We're told that Adam knew Eve, his wife. We're given a little history. She conceived and bore Cain. That's what happens. And she said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. 
This you bore again, this time his brother Abel. Abel was a keeper of sheep, Cain a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock of their fat. Very similar language, don't you find, from Leviticus? And the Lord, we're told, respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. The scene begins by informing us that in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain and Abel brought offerings to the Lord. Right from the jump, there are a few interesting thoughts that arise. First, there seems to be a very clear, quote, process by which these offerings were to be made. They understood something. Adam and Eve, and by extension their sons, Cain and Abel, knew that if they wanted to meet with God, A, an offering was required, and B, there was a right way and a wrong way that offering was to be made. A process. The process of time. I mean, how else do you explain that understanding, apart from God articulating these things to them, establishing a precedent at the end of Genesis 3? Secondly, since we're told in the process of time it came to pass, we also reason there was a distinct time when the offerings were to be made. Now, we have no idea a lot of things. We, we don't know how much time elapsed between the births of the boys and this particular event. We don't know how old they were. We can't say whether or not this was even the first time they had come and made such offerings. The text is unclear. That being said, we can say with a certainty that there was a specific time they understood that they needed to come and engage with their Creator through these sacrifices, these offerings. Thirdly, while we aren't specifically told in Genesis 4, we do know there was a mechanism by which these boys could tell whether or not God had respected their offering or rejected it. Because Cain and Abel very much knew in the process of it, God accepted one, rejected the other. So there had to have been a mechanism by which their offerings were accepted or rejected. In the Hebrew, this word that we have, respected, is the word shaha, which can be simply translated as to look upon. Because both Cain and Abel know, following the presentation of their offerings, that God had respected or looked upon one and had rejected the other, it's only logical there had to have been a visual component to the demonstration of God's pleasure and His displeasure. I think that's just simply logical. Which leads us to kind of our fourth and final point, our observations, is that while we aren't given any specific reference in the Genesis record, the text infers that God had defined... Not just a time and a process and mechanism, but a place, a location, they were to come and make these offerings. Look again at the text. Notice, each boy brought an offering, implying that they knew a designated location. You can't bring something without knowing where you're bringing it, to which you're bringing it. Furthermore, this line, they brought an offering to the Lord, tells us, that they came to a known place where God would be, where God dwelt. You know, when you place this passage into the greater flow of Genesis, it's only logical 
in my opinion, that the location had to have been the eastern gate of the Garden of Eden. Again, Eden was the connecting point between heaven and earth. It was the place where God dwelt, and thus their access restricted. Additionally, when you consider that it was outside of Eden that God had made a first sacrifice on behalf of Adam and Eve, these tunics of skin, well, this would be a natural location you would return to in order to make similar offerings. Think about this for a moment. Adam and Eve clearly knew that in order to meet with God, they needed to come to a physical location, a place where heaven met earth. They also knew the importance of bringing an offering in order to meet with God. They also realized that there was a tangible way that God would either accept or reject the offering. In fact, in the place itself, their separation was reinforced through the existence of two things, a cherubim as well as a flaming sword. In Exodus chapter 25, Moses is given the instructions for the creation of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant would be situated in the Holy of Holies. It would be the very place where God's presence would dwell. Let me read you what God tells Moses. He says, you shall put into the Ark of Testimony that I give to you, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its width. Notice this. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work you shall make them at two ends of the mercy seat. The cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings. They shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be towards the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I give you. There I will meet with you. From there I will speak with you. From above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are on the ark. Are you beginning to see the correlations between the tabernacle of meeting and this scene at the eastern gate of Eden? Think about it. Both were the location where heaven came in contact with earth. An idea further illustrated by the existence of the cherubim on either side of the mercy seat of the ark as well as their physical presence outside of the Garden of Eden. Humanity came to both locations for one reason. It was the place in which God dwelt, where His presence was. Well, it's such an incredible idea that this location where man could meet with God existed at all, existed in the first place. In both dynamics, the limitation of God's accessibility was visually evident, was reinforced. In the tabernacle, there was a veil that separated humanity from the presence of God. And in the case of the garden, there was this flaming sword which turned every which way, prohibiting access and entrance. Whether it was Adam and Eve coming to the gate of Eden or the children of Israel coming to the tabernacle, in both dynamics, the necessity of approaching through an acceptable offering was clearly understood by all. Well, I can't say with 100% certainty, a solid case can be made that Cain and Abel likely knew that their offerings had been accepted or rejected based upon whether or not 
fire would come from the presence of God and physically consume the sacrifice. Now you might say, well, Zach, how do you know that? I I can't say with 100% certainty. The text doesn't tell us. But over and over and over and over and over again, there is a precedent all throughout Scripture of fire consuming the altar, the offering being the evidence of God's favor. Again, it's astonishing to consider, but the scene that we have in Leviticus 9, while incredible in its own right, is God taking humanity all the way back to the scene in Genesis 4. The scene around the tabernacle where the people of Israel anticipating the exception or the rejection of their offering is identical to the scene of both Cain and Abel outside of Eden waiting to see if God would accept or reject their offerings. And it's because of the similarities of all of these things, realizing they can't be an accident, they can't be a coincidence, that we must ask, what important lesson presented in Genesis 4 is critical to our understanding of what's taking place in Leviticus 9? To answer this question, let me take just a few minutes and unpack in greater detail what takes place in Genesis 4. Adam and Eve have been cast into a world very very different than the one they had previously known in the garden. Logically, they start having children, two boys in particular. The first son, they named Cain, means acquired. That's what the word Cain means. Seems, there's evidence, that Eve likely believed Cain was in actuality a savior. God had promised it would be through the seed of the woman. They'd never had kids before, yet boom, there's another male. This would be the savior. That being said, doesn't take very long for her to realize Cain was no savior at all. She has a second son, Abel, which means emptiness and vanity. God's plan to provide a savior wasn't going to happen as quickly as they might have initially anticipated. Well, there is no question that Cain and Abel would have had strong, very strong genetic traits. I mean, they do have parents with identical DNA. We come quickly to see, though, that each of these boys had contrasting interests, contrasting talents. The text tells us that that Abel was a keeper of sheep. Cain was a tiller of the ground. One was a shepherd. The other was a, a gardener, a farmer. And no doubt both of these skill sets were instrumental in providing important resources for the family, whether it was wool or milk or just purely food. At some determined point in time, both Cain and Abel know that they're going to go to Eden and they're going to make an offering before the Lord. Now, before we get to Cain, let's just kind of begin with Abel. In verse 4, we're told that Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock. What results? The Lord respected Abel and his offering. Now, consider how that process would have played out for Abel. He knows that there's a process. He knows there's a time. There's a location. I'm going to go make an offering. Well, he's a keeper of sheep. And so he's looking out for a firstborn, a spotless lamb. Sure enough, one's born. He takes it out of the flock. He knows this is going to be his offering. He's got to protect it. No doubt that little lamb and Abel grow close. That little lamb probably becomes like a pet. He names him, even. Chepetto, the little lamb. 
They become attached. It's not in the fields with the rest of the lambs. Instead, it's inside with him where he can keep it safe and protect it. No doubt it sleeps with him, keeps him warm at night, nestles up against his head. But then the time comes, and he takes the little lamb he's selected. Abel knows what's going to happen. The lamb, oblivious, no idea. Abel approaches the altar, the little lamb looking up into his eyes with love, care, tenderness, pure trust. The lamb doesn't realize that in the other hand is a knife. And Abel there on the altar as that little lamb, he takes it from ear to ear and slits its throat. The starts to curdle as the blood starts to flow everywhere. All over the white coat of the lamb, all over Abel's arms, he's crying. He sees the life go out of, of, of something he cares about. He's invested, he's connected to. It's painful. He's crying, not just a few tears. We're talking like tears with snot, intense crying, weeping. And he lays that little lamb, recognizing this is what it took upon the altar. Bloody mess. In contrast, we're told that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground. What results? God did not respect Cain and his offering. And consider, again, in contrast to Abel, how this process would have played out for Cain. Again, he knows that there's going to be a time, there's a process, there's a place. Unlike his brother, he's a, he's a doer. He's a tiller of the ground, of the earth. He's a farmer. And he knows he's going to go and he's going to make an offering. And so he takes a, a part of his field that's got a perfect, perfect amount of sun, perfect access to water. He knows what he's doing. He sets it aside. I'm going to grow like this cornucopia basket filled with fruits and vegetables. And man, when it burns, there's going to be spices. It's going to be great. God's going to love this. And I mean, he, he tills the soil. He goes over to the fields. He gets a little fertilizer, works it in. He takes seed from the best of the... Of the, of the other plants, of the other, of the other uh, harvest, and he, and he works it. I mean, day in, day, day and night, he is tending this. I mean, when, when he finally, it's the day, and he picks only the best of the best, and he puts it together in his basket, and he takes it as well to the offering. I mean, this is uh, through blood, sweat, tears, effort. Literally, the fruit of his labor. And he brings it, there to the altar of the Lord, and he sets it there, and there's a pride. I did this. I made this. This is the best of the best that I have to give. You can understand why he would be angry when God rejected it. First, there is an argument that can be made that Cain's offering was rejected because it wasn't a blood sacrifice. There's an argument there. Well, we've seen in Leviticus... There were all kinds of offerings that didn't necessitate the shedding of blood. It's true they all came after the burnt offering, after atonement had been secured. And yet, I'm convinced that this was not the ultimate reason why Cain's offering was rejected. I don't think it was just because there wasn't a blood component. 
look again at the text. I want to point something out most overlooked. We read, see if you can pick it up. The Lord respected Abel and his offering. But the Lord did not respect Cain and his offering. You, you pick it up? The, 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 all, the ordering and the sentence structure, it suggests something important. That God accepted and rejected first the man and then his offering. Because God accepted Abel, he accepted his offering. That's the way the sentence structure is formatted. And because God did not respect Cain, his offering was subsequently rejected. It seems that God, from the way the, the passage is presented, was more interested, and don't miss it, in the attitude of the offerer with the offering being accepted and rejected as a result of that attitude. In regards to Abel, we understand that he was accepted by God, not because it was a blood offering, but because his offering demonstrated faith in God's promised Savior. Like to this point in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, we're told that it was by faith that Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, meaning that God testified that he accepted it, I think, again, implying fire. You see, Abel was right with God. Why? Abel was right with God because of his faith in God. He offered an acceptable sacrifice as a result of his faith. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 35, Jesus will even refer to this man as righteous Abel. And yet, in contrast to Abel, Cain's entire approach here is much different, isn't it? I contend that if Cain had made his offering out of a response to God's grace, very similar to the grain offering that we saw in Leviticus 2, of which there was also no blood, if he had come making an offering out of response to all that God had given him, if that was the motivation, I think God would have accepted it. And yet, the Scriptures tell us that Cain's heart was far from right. Not only does this reality become clear when he, in his anger, then kills his brother. Spoiler, that's what happens in the rest of the chapter. But we're told in 1 John 3, verse 12, this is how Cain's described. That Cain was of the wicked one. And his works, and what works do we have? Only this one. His works were evil. Fundamentally, the reason that Cain was rejected by God centered on the fact that his approach to God was transactional. Cain came to present to God the fruit of his own labor, his work. He came to the Lord to offer something of value. Why? Because he expected God in turn would reciprocate a gift back. Transactional. And the problem with a transactional approach to God boils down to two misconceptions. 
Now, Cain's first misstep was the assumption that God actually wanted anything he had to give. Like, tragically, Cain was conceived his best would be good enough that the fruit of his labor God would be honored by, receive, and enjoy. And yet what Cain quickly comes to realize was that God didn't want anything from him. In fact, Cain's best fell woefully short, which you can understand why he was angry and his countenance fell. His best efforts to give God a gift that God would be blessed by had not just been rejected, it had been rejected publicly. His pride had been deeply insulted. The second problem with Cain's approach is that he was trying to get God to act in a manner inconsistent with who God actually was. Inconsistent with his person. Let me explain. In, in a way, Cain presents his offering. He's attempting to do something subversive. Cain, in the way he makes his offering, he's assuming the role of giver which in turn makes God into a receiver. But that is never who God is. To this point, C.H. McIntosh writes, Man would fain make God a receiver instead of a giver, but this cannot be. There's a law that it is more blessed to give than to receive. And assuredly, God must have always the more blessed place. The great giver of all things cannot possibly need anything. What made Cain's approach so profoundly offensive is that he believed he could earn a favor that God would only give him. Friend, may you never, ever forget that God, solely by who He is, is in the business of bestowing favor. Not receiving you see, God, by who He is, wants to lavish upon you blessing after blessing that you can't earn and that you don't deserve. That God fundamentally delights in giving good gifts. Which is why He's so insulted when we attempt to barter with Him with the things He's already ready to give. Don't we do that so often in our prayers? Let's look back to how all of these things apply to Leviticus 9. It's specifically the lesson for these people around the tabernacle of meeting. Think about it. What was it about Abel and his sacrifice that caused God to accept him? And what was it about Cain and his offering that led him to be rejected? one thing it was their heart it was the heart behind it all you see the grand lesson in Genesis 4 is that the attitude of the person coming to make an offering matters more to God than the offering do you see how this lesson might be important for a group of people gathered around the tabernacle who had just received a bunch of laws pertaining to how you would come and make offerings. Like, while it's true 
The details for all of these things recorded in Leviticus 1 through 7 were important. The details had a purpose. What's interesting is that God knew in all of the details that there would be a drawback. You know, anytime that a society loses sight of the fundamental purpose behind the details, one of two things always happens, always results. People either stop caring altogether about the details, or the details become so important they become the point. Like, let me just give you one of what could be many examples. But we see this all the time in Christianity. When the purpose behind a church tradition ends up getting lost, what ends up happening? It's always one of two extremes. Either the tradition becomes a legalistic necessity. Oh, the details are totally super important. We don't know why, but they're important. We become legalistic, or it's all abandoned entirely. Like two extremes, we see it all the time. Within church, how we deal with things. The irony to it all is that the more appropriate response is to take a step back and figure out why the tradition existed in the first place. Because most of the time, yes, it's not as important as one group concludes, but it shouldn't be discarded either. Why are there the details? You see, on the day, day one of this entire Levitical system, God intentionally connects the scene to the one outside of Eden, of which they all knew, in order to remind them what really mattered, what mattered most. It's as though God is telling them, guys, where we're at, fire, offering, presence, worship. We've been here before. We were here in the garden immediately. Genesis 4. So don't forget the lesson of Cain and Abel. You see, you can obey all of these things I've just told you about down to the letter of the law. You can offer sacrifice after sacrifice here at this tabernacle, but if your heart isn't right like Cain, if you're making these offerings, even down to the detail for the wrong reason, motivated by the wrong aim, transactional, if you don't always keep in mind what the sacrifices are about, none of it matters. Well, I mean, really, what a, what a lesson. Seven chapters of sacrifices, instituting the priest, we gather, we make the first one, and God's like, yeah, these are great. But I, I, I care more about the heart behind them. What a lesson. You see, they needed to avoid the way of Cain, who was rejected by God because his offering was made in the pride of his self-sufficiency. You see, Cain fell into the religious trap of believing his, his offerings could earn for him a right standing with God that could only be given because of faith. And in contrast, as these people around the tabernacle, thinking back to that scene in the garden, they needed to remember Abel. Abel was ultimately accepted by God because his offering was made in the humility of his inadequacy. Abel made his offering in an act of faith, believing that God would make good on his promise to send a Savior who would grant to him a right standing with God. 
Is there any wonder why in Proverbs 3, verse 34, James 4, verse 6, 1 Peter 5, 5, we're told again and again and again, what? That God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. You know, the tragic reality is that with time, this warning that God was communicating to the people went unheeded. Because they in time forgot why the sacrifices mattered, you know what ends up happening? They eventually stop making the sacrifices altogether and end up in exile. God's like, you've totally missed this. So I'm kicking you out and I'm destroying this temple. We're going to start over. But then what happens? When they return to the land, because they still have forgotten the whole point of the details, they become obsessed with them. So on one turn, they forgot about the details, so they just quit making the sacrifices, and God judged them. Flip side, they become so obsessed with the details that what ends up happening? They don't just miss the point. The irony of all ironies, in fact, maybe the most ironic thing to have ever happened on this planet, is that you had a group of priests in the temple, on Passover, frantically making sacrifices that we've looked at, while the Lamb of God hung on a cross, the cross of Calvary, making the ultimate sacrifice to atone for the sins of the world. They missed it all. In closing, the grand lesson here especially when we're looking at offerings and sacrifices. God doesn't care about your sacrifices. He doesn't care about your offerings. He cares about your heart. Your heart before Him. Here's the thing. If the heart is always right, guess what is always correct? If the heart is right, you'll make the right offering. If the heart is right, you'll make the right sacrifice and the right thing, looking to the right person. If the heart is right, what follows is always correct. But if the heart is wrong, you'll never do a thing right. This is the point. You know, in the midst of his failures, and man, were they bad. King David, who will be described, even in light of his shortcomings, as a man after God's own heart. This is what he writes in Psalms 51 and his psalm of repentance. He says, and don't miss this, God, you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering for the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit a broken and contrite heart. These things, O oh God, you will not despise. The scene there around the tabernacle. They're making their first offerings and God says, hey, don't forget why and how. I care more about your heart than anything else. So Father, with that exhortation,